everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on. And if you look over my, I guess for you, it's the right shoulder, the left shoulder, whatever, different banner up, not the presidential campaign banner, but uh, Hawkins for governor. As I've mentioned, if you've been on the last week or two, that I got the designation from the Green Party of New York. And shortly I'll have one uh, to, uh, to share with us my running mate, uh, Gloria Matera, who's running for lieutenant governor. And uh, if you look at the slogan there, this, this was a 2010 banner. And you can see tax Wall Street, invest in Main Street. 2010, we were coming out of the Great Recession. So that was a big issue. And that's when uh, we were talking about uh, we were the first candidates to run on a Green New Deal. And even though when I ran for president, I, they were calling me the original Green New Dealer, and we documented that. Actually, Gloria was also one of the original Green New Dealers. So we're running here in New York State as the original Green New Dealers uh, because that's where this whole uh, slogan got started. So we started petitioning on Tuesday, April 19th. We have 42 days until May 31st to get 45,000 signatures. And that is, from the research I've done, the hardest ballot access uh, standard in the United States of any of the states. And in fact, it's harder than any country I can find. And I think I've mentioned here before, but just briefly, uh, the best way to compare this country to other countries is to look at what it takes to run as an independent for the national uh, legislature, because a lot of uh, countries don't have directly elected executives. They have parliamentary systems. So the executive comes out of parliamentary coalition that has the majority. So if you do that comparison uh, to run for the House of Representatives as an independent, varies by state. New York's 3,500, uh, Illinois is over 15,000, uh, Georgia's over 20,000, Alabama's over 30,000, Indiana's over 40,000. But you go to other countries, you want to run as an independent for the House of Commons in the UK, it's 10 signatures. For the unicameral uh, parliament in New Zealand, it's two signatures. It's 100 in Australia, it's 100 in Canada, unless you're in a rural riding, that's what they call their districts, writings. It's 50 signatures. It's 20, uh, 200 in Germany. And that's typical. The, the worst I found was Russia. You want to run as the independent for the state Duma from one of their 85 constituencies. It's 15,000 signatures in 45 days. Now that's close to the old standard in New York. Instead of 45,000, it was 15,000 in 42 days. So the Greens have been shopping around a bill to uh, Democratic legislators saying, you know, we need to get back to the old standard uh, to have some semblance of fairness and ballot access. And I've been joking with them that we just want to get back to the Putin standard. And they laugh and they mostly say we're right. And then they say, uh, but I don't know if we want to put that in there till after the election because we don't want to anger the governor, you know, who's a Democrat, Kathy Hochul. So, um, the petitioning has been going well. Most people, I mean, my pitch is, um, can you help us out with a signature to put the Green Party back on the ballot? And most people don't know 
we lost the ballot line. The law that changed it, uh, Governor Cuomo, the now disgraced former governor, rammed through uh, as an attachment to the budget package in April 2020 when we were locked down with COVID and didn't get a lot of attention, but it did knock us off the ballot in the 2020 presidential election. They tripled the number of signatures we have to get, more than tripled the number of votes we need to get. They doubled the frequency from the governor's race every four years to president, governor, president every two years. They quintupled the number of signatures we got to get in congressional districts in a distribution requirement from 100 to 500. And, uh, you know, it's designed to keep us off the ballot. And as we point out that uh, party suppression is a form of voter suppression. It's what authoritarian governments do. And it's what the Democrats are doing. We all know what the Republicans are doing with the suppression of voter rights and taking over election administration so they can steal elections. But the Democrats are not uh, doing too well either when it comes to ballot access. New York is probably the worst, but there are other states like Nevada where they uh, passed a law making it harder to get on a ballot. And according to Richard Winger at Ballot Access News, that was aimed at the uh, Green Party in Nevada. They want, the Democrats want to keep them off. And that's, you know, that's about as authoritarian as you can get to suppress a political party. And uh, the other thing I'll just note is everybody's, you know, noticing gerrymandering, big issue here in New York. It wasn't the Republicans, it was the Democrats. And in fact, uh, while they did approve the gerrymandered districts for the state legislature, the congressional districts have, have been held up in the courts. So uh, <coughs> we have to get a distribution requirement on our petition, and we're not sure what the congressional districts are going to be. So that's putting us at a disadvantage, one more. So we got real challenges here, but everybody's out. I've been talking to people today all over the state, been out petitioning. I went to a farmer's market. I got 120 signatures in three hours, which is about as fast as people can write. And I had two petitions going. Uh, so we're going to do our best. And uh, let's bring on Gloria Matera, who's my running mate. As I said, she was the original Green New Dealer. And just to say a few words about Gloria, um, we ran together in 2010 when the Greens didn't have a ballot line. And we got the ballot line. So uh, I had other running mates in 2014 and 2018. But now we got... Gloria again, and we're going to try to get that ballot line back under even more difficult circumstances. And Gloria's been working in the public hospital system for many years. Uh, she's a longtime activist for expanded and improved Medicare for all. And we have a bill here in New York called New York Health. Maybe we can talk about that because mm -hmm. once the Democrats got power, they couldn't get the power, use the power to get it passed, even though they promised that. She's been a board member, is a board member of the New York City Metro Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. She's been active for decades. She was uh, uh, secretary of the New York Chapter of the uh, Labor Party that was spearheaded by Tony Mazzocchi, for those of you old enough to remember that effort. And when she got involved with the Green Party in 2001, uh, she ran for city council against somebody you all have heard of, Bill de Blasio, who became the mayor of New York. And... Uh, that first run, she got 10%. She ran against them again two years later, 2003, got nearly 20%. Um, and then in 2005, she ran for Brooklyn Borough President over a development issue, what's now the Barclays Center. And she received 7% each time she got matching funds. So those were really high-profile campaigns and uh, really 
brought the Greens to attention in Brooklyn and New York City. And she's a longtime eco-socialist activist with groups like System Change, Not Climate Change, and the Green Eco-Socialist Network. So, Gloria, thanks for coming on. And uh, why don't you tell us more about yourself and the issues we're running on and take it away. Sure. Thanks, Howie. It's great to be on. It's like, hi, everyone. It's like getting the band back together, uh, you and I. So um, I'm really honored to run. Howie has been uh, a mentor and a comrade and a friend um, to me a long time, uh, even before the Green Party knew of Howie and you know followed his politics. Um, so just a little bit more. Howie gave me a great introduction. So you kind of got a little snippet of my kind of you know political trajectory. Um, but connected to that, you know, I started out uh, as a special ed teacher. Um, I'm a native uh, Brooklynite, lived here my whole life. Um, so all my work has been in uh, New York City, you know, public services, education. Uh, after that, I moved into a discipline called Child Life, where I'm working in public hospital. I've been there for over 30 years. And that really soon after going into the public hospital system and seeing that, you know, the mission of public health um, is so important and the community, uh, you know, caring for the community, involving the community around these public hospitals. And no matter how good the healthcare would be and, and the hospital I worked in, uh, lots of good support social services, uh, you just saw what the, you know, for-profit system, the health insurance system, the leaving out of undocumented families, many of which use the services in public hospitals, uh, you know, that there was something terribly wrong uh, with this. And when I realized that is really kind of came upon Physicians for a National Health Program, which is a national organization of a very vibrant chapter here in New York City uh, that had been advocating for, you know, um, expanded, improved Medicare for all, single payer, lots of different ways of talking about it. But basically, um, you know, one of my mentors in PNHP just said it easily. It's like everybody in, nobody out, doesn't matter. Um, and so that really made me become active, politically active. Um, and people might remember back in the 90s when Clinton's, the Clintons talked about healthcare reform, that ended up just being another service to the insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies. And then I started to understand that, well, this is not going to happen. This change for what people need for, for health justice, it's not going to happen if we have the same political system, winner take all, two corporate parties, beholden to war in Wall Street. And that really got me involved in independent political um, electoral work with the Labor Party. And then, you know, early on 2001 and currently today with the Green Party. Um, so I've co-chair the Green Party of of New York. I've been a recent co-chair of the, the National Party. And here I am running for Lieutenant Governor, uh, definitely on the Green New Deal. Um, it's it's our new and improved Green New Deal. You know, we look every time uh, and then really hats off to Howie and the team that he works with coming up with what the Green New Deal stays in its, you know, essence and its foundation, right, around public ownership, uh, around uh, sustainability, you know, creating jobs and preserving the planet uh, and all the species on there. But looking each time to say, because the onslaught, you know, from the corporations, the onslaught from the 1% from the empire gets harder and harder. Um, and that's why we have to keep coming back with the solutions that really mean something to people. 
Okay, let's let's talk about some of the key issues here in New York mm -hmm. State. Um, in my introduction, I, I didn't, and I meant to uh, talk about, uh, we have a huge problem with corruption. Mm -hmm. We just had a governor leave. Uh, the, the issue that got the most headlines was sexual predation and harassment of staff. Uh, I think equally bad, if not worse, was the fact that uh, he had as a policy sending people from uh, hospitals who had COVID back to nursing homes in order to lower the numbers of people dying in the hospitals mm -hmm. uh, and, and what was being reported. And because of that, we've had real carnage in our nursing homes and long-term care facilities in the state. 12% of the people that were living there when the COVID uh, outbreak uh, started are now passed. Mm -hmm. So, but, it, you know, we, we've lost, let's see, we lost Spitzer, uh, Patterson had a big issue with corruption. Um, we lost an attorney general. Uh, what was his name? Um, not just Spitzer, but um, uh, uh, he's forgettable because he didn't do a whole lot. But, <laughs> well, we've uh, also, you know, over the years, Sil the, you know, the speaker, the minority speaker, the majority speaker, Silver. Um, yes. You know, the current lieutenant governor, the, the most recent lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin, who was really picked by Kathy Hochul when he was already under a cloud of suspicion. And so, you know, I think what we can say is that the, you know, the corruption and the shenanigans that go on in New York state politics um, are pr they're pretty deep and pretty widespread. And of course, we know other states and love to hear from other people, too, that similar things go on. But, you know, New York was credited, I think, a few years back to have one of the most dysfunctional state legislatures in the in the nation. Um, and so that's what we're fighting. And, you know, they've gotten to know that Howie, uh, in particular, because he's been a candidate for governor, it's, um, you know, for several times, getting our ballot line, you know, renewed each time. But the Green Party in New York in general, you know, continues to come up with the kinds of solutions that are really important, uh, that we keep pushing back. Our candidates will speak on issues that no one else is speaking about, uh, whether it's pushing for the New York Health Act, uh, real criminal justice reform, you know, legalizing and decriminalizing uh, cannabis, and that, you know, that this was an attempt basically to suppress what is truly the left radical, you know, revolutionary party here in New York, right? And so, you know, get rid of, getting rid of the Green Party, the, the Democrats, the Working Families Party, you know, they can just kind of pretend we lean to the left uh, because that's cover for them to be able to say that when the Green Party is being suppressed. But right now is how we said we have uh, hats off to my green comrades who are out today on a beautiful Saturday, uh, Earth Day, you know, Earth Weekend, uh, getting signatures because it's going to be a monumental task. But, you know, you can help us with that um, because just uh, not today is not just uh, you know, the Earth Day weekend kind of celebrations that are happening, but it's my birthday. And uh, I'm not going to talk about my age, really, but I'll just tell you that I got my Medicare card. So uh, this is a special day um, in many ways, uh, kicking off our petitioning, I'm celebrating my Medicare birthday. And so if people want to think about making a, a birthday donation, $65 to uh, our petitioning effort, to our campaign, to really get the Green Party back on the ballot. 
uh, you can do that. Uh, there's the information right there on the screen. Thank you, hawkinsmatera.org slash donate. Um, not sure, Howie, if we need a specific URL, but we can always circle back to that. Um, let's just keep talking about the issues. Yeah, that is the URL. Um, it, you can put www dot in front of it. And if you just go to hawkinsmatera.org, we have a lot of material up on the web page. Uh, but use the slash donate because the link to the donate page is not up on the uh, whole web page at least an hour ago. We're almost there. Uh, we've been you know, working away, getting this website together and it just went live today. So, um, but the donate page is working and, uh, yeah, 65 or any amount, but 65 <laughs> would be a nice donation. We are, uh, hiring petitioners. I mean, to get 45,000 in 42 days, that's, uh, you know, it's over a thousand a day. You really need double that to be safe in New York. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans see the way it works here. If you if your party and your recognized party has a convention and designates you, you don't have to get signatures. So Governor Hochul and whoever she picks as the lieutenant governor, because Brian Benjamin, the one, the corrupt one, just had to resign and he's in he's being indicted uh, for bribery and uh, fraud related to campaign finance. Um you know, they didn't have to get signatures. Now, if a major party candidate wanted to challenge them in a primary, they had to get 15,000, one third of what we had to get in 42 days. And their petitions, the party petitions were turned in last week, and they're all being challenged by the designated candidate in each party. So, you know, it's very cutthroat here in New York. They always go after the Greens. So, you know, to be safe from challenge, we're really going for 90,000. Right. So that $65 or $650 or $6.50, you know, you know, look at your budget and what you can do really will help. And uh, so. Yeah. So Howie, what's the, let's make, what's the, uh, the, the Green New Deal really mean um, if we're elected to run New York State? Like what would, what kinds of specific things, let's tell people out there, um, that would really change. That would really be different because, you know, I know from even connecting it to something, you know, talking a little bit about what I talk about was non-reformist reform, right? Because that's the campaign for New York health. It's a really important campaign. People should check out. Uh, it will be like a single payer system for New York, New York state, no co-pays, no deductibles. Um, everybody will be included in that, you know, that's not, that's on the road to really, you know, health justice, where you would have, um, you know, a national health service. We know that state initiatives, you know, are have a certain way of, of being restricted, right? How are you going to be able to do that? But I think if the more we promote that this is happening right now as a campaign, you know, we think it's a great educational tool for people. It's a great way to move towards that, um, you know, because of obviously, if we're when we're talking about what needs to be done in this country is really not just how we pay for health care, which is having, you know, the government and the way the Canadian system has been. Uh, but at, at some point, we really have to look at, like, who is controlling that? Who is making decisions? Because private equity companies are becoming like more and more prominent, right? When we talked about single payer in the past or in the way the Canadians have been doing it, 
It's the government, you know, will be insured as the insurer paying out the individual doctors or the individual hospital bill, right? Now, what's happening is really these are becoming corporations, conglomerates of doctors. Um, you know, most of these places, diagnostic centers, clinics, uh, rehab centers, nursing homes, all owned um, and private equity companies. Uh, and that really is completely uh, devoid of caring about the patient, of doctors making decisions along with their patients. Yeah, they deny service and increase their profits. And it's not just the insurance system now. It's the whole delivery system, which is why we want not just socialized insurance, but a socialized medical system. And that's, you know, what Angela and I campaigned on. Uh, we called for a community-controlled national health service. So what we're saying in New York is pass this insurance program, universal public health care, public health insurance. It's called New York Health. But then we want to move on. And uh, New York, if it was ranked in the world, would be the world's 11th largest economy among the nations of the world, bigger than Russia. What we do in New York matters. And that's true for healthcare, where the Democrats in the state assembly, they started passing a version of this bill in the 1992. And they passed it many times and they kept saying, well, we can't get it through the Senate. We got to get Democratic control of the Senate. Well, they now have a supermajority in the Senate. They got the assembly and they got the governorship. Mm -hmm. And now the bill can't come out of committee for the last four years since they got their majority. That's your Democratic Party for you. They will talk progressive, but when it really comes to doing stuff that would impinge upon corporate interests, they don't because they're a corporate funded party and that's their bread and butter. And that's why we need the Greens. Um, you know, we were talking about, well, why did they make it harder for the Greens to get on the ballot? And you're right, Gloria, it was because of the Greens. The narrative among the media here is Andrew Cuomo didn't like the Working Families Party because they were critical of him trying to push him to the left. A couple times, one time they challenged him in a primary. The first time they didn't support Zephyr Teach out against Cuomo. And then in the general, they always put Cuomo on the ballot line. So we didn't, they didn't take anything from him. We got 5% in 2014. Mm -hmm. And before that, Cuomo was, you know, playing up the fiscal conservative, trying to appeal to Republicans. And we got a big vote because particularly public employees in the state were really angry with Andrew Cuomo. So we got a big vote in the Albany area where the state government's based, a lot of teachers, um, and at 5%. So then Cuomo, who had wanted to run up the, ballot, the, the vote, get more than his daddy, Mario Cuomo, ever got his governor. More than he got in 2010, he got left. And to compete for that green vote, we had leverage. And Cuomo changed his tune. Now he was the quote-unquote pr pragmatic progressive who gets things done. We got a ban on fracking, a $15 minimum wage, paid family leave. He made an empty, uh, duplicitous gesture toward tuition-free public college, but he was trying to get those votes. So that's leverage that we can have. Even if we don't win the office, we can move the debate and the policy our way. Um, and just like in healthcare, you know, the first question you asked was, well, what's unique about our Green New Deal? And for us, it was always uh, an eco-socialist program because much of this has to be done through the public sector. Mm -hmm. And the Democrats took the slogan in 2018, you know, AOC and marking, they put in their non-binding resolution for a Green New Deal. And I've talked about this. They watered it down. They, they left out the ban on fracking and new fossil fuel infrastructure. They left out the phase out of nuclear power. They left out the cuts to military spending and extended the deadline 
20 years from 2030 to 2050 for zero emissions. And then it really wasn't zero emissions. It was net zero, which opened the door to continued burning of fossil fuels with carbon capture and sequestration technologies that don't exist. But even bigger or as big is the fact that uh, instead of public power, you know, in our utilities and uh, public uh, manufacturing. So, for example, we can transition the steel industry from coke ovens to blast furnaces uh, heated by green hydrogen and electric arc furnaces for the scrap steel. That's 8% of the world's carbon footprint. Same thing with cement. You got to get to a not using carbon carbonate to harden the cement because the carbon, when they heat it up, goes into the atmosphere. That's another 8% of the world's uh, carbon footprint. So these technologies got to change and you can't do that by offering tax breaks and subsidies and loan guarantees to the private sector because their business decisions are going to be, we're going to wear out the technology we got before we start a new technology. That's why it's got to go through the public sector. And the Democrats have taken our slogan and distorted it. I mean, we, we use the World War II analogy. You know, we got to do like the federal government did during World War II when it took over a quarter of manufacturing in the country. The turn industry on a dime into what FDR called the arsenal of democracy, to arm the allies to, to defeat the fascists. And we need to do nothing less through the public sector to defeat climate change. So what we have in New York is we had a bill that uh, we helped write mm -hmm. called New York Off, Off Fossil Fuels. The competing bill was from the Working Families Party. And it was called, uh, I forget what it was called, but then Cuomo even used the phrase Green New Deal, which was really stretching the phrase. And they came up with a compromise bill called uh, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which is a much watered down, too slow transition to clean energy. So we bring not just an eco-socialist approach that's needed, but a faster timeline that's in comportment with the climate science and indicative of the difference in the bill that passed it says in the prefatory remarks our goal is to get to 450 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere that was a standard proposed like around 2005 and the science james hansen proposed 350 parts per million bill mckibben uh popularized that and you know that's a much better safer standard but this bill that passed uses a, a standard, but by the time it passed, it was 15 years out of date. So, you know, we're coming here with the climate science and an eco-socialist approach that we're just not getting from the Democrats, including the progressive democratic socialists, or so, as they call themselves in New York State. So that's uh, that's why we need the Green Party. Right. I don't know how, if you have any, um, if anybody listening has any particular questions, I, I do think if, uh, People are out there, uh, whether they're in New York or, you know, other places and thinking of running for office as an independent, as an eco-socialist, as a green. You know, I think some of the policies that we've been talking about, uh, even if you're not running for office and you're kind of thinking about organizing as an organizing tool in your communities. I think, you know, Howie, the way you talk about public power, uh, public banks, you know, community land trusts, I think these are really good community issues that either local candidates or, or people banding together in their communities can really be pushing for, because I think that those are the steps, right? The transitional steps to start getting more, uh, more power, more democratically controlled decision-making 
in the hands of workers, in the hands of the communities, uh, worker co-ops in the same in the, you know same vein, and you know kind of away from this you know top-down kind of corporate hierarchy. Yeah, and when it comes to worker co-ops, I mean the state has a a very uh, like what's the word token program to encourage employee ownership. And what we're saying is we should have a state bank with a a technical and entrepreneurial department that can actually plan worker co-ops where they're needed. And this is what they did in Mondragon. And then they hire the workers to execute that business plan and train them in cooperative self-management of the business. You need that. I've worked in co-op development and you just can't expect people like I worked in construction. I worked in a worker co-op in construction, but most, most building trades people, they don't know the, you know, the management uh, side of it and you can't expect them to. Um, what you can't expect them to do is uh, hire their managers or, you know, vote them in because they elect the board of the, of the firm, or if it's smaller, it's a collective of the workers. Um, and then of course they get the full value of the labor, the, that they get the full value of what their labor creates instead of having, you know, bosses take it, take a big portion away. Um, but those won't, you know, just pop up because people, if you look at the co-ops that are popping up right now, it tends to be, you know, well-educated, college-educated, middle-class people in services or things like restaurants. But in other areas, uh, you know, particularly where there's blue-collar workers, you got to have more technical and, and financial support. So that's that's what I think that's the way we're really going to promote worker co-ops. Right. I mean, the laws on the books right now in New York, really, uh, what they do, what they do is facilitate corporations, um, you know, to be able to form and proliferate. Right. In fact, there are, you know, there's very little legislation that's that facilitates worker co-ops. I think what, you know, we will be talking about is, you know, flipping that. Right. And, you know, providing opportunities, providing incentives, providing resources for more worker co-ops. I want to acknowledge, you know, both Howie and I have, you know, conversations with uh, Professor Richard Wolf, who talks a lot, done a lot of work around democracy in the workplace and workers co-ops. And that's, you know, one of the other things that fits really well into the Green New Deal. Yeah. For example, in uh, one area where you don't want a big uh, public corporation doing all the retrofitting of buildings, which is, you know, in, in New York is the biggest carbon contributor. We got to, you know, make them more efficient, uh, retrofit them with heat pumps for heating and cooling, um, apply solar and wind applications where they're appropriate to the property. Um, that is something that work for co-ops. They can do the work of retrofitting. Doesn't have to be a, you know, a public corporation, a public enterprise. It can be, you know, private enterprises that are cooperatives. And that's what I did back in the 70s. We didn't know what green jobs were. We were doing them. And uh, we did it as a worker co-op. Um, and so I think that's an area where there's so many jobs to be created in that field. And that's where worker co-ops would be much better than, you know, having contractors hire workers and get most of the money and the workers just get the wage that the market bears at that point. Uh, and we also need to promote union co-ops like the steel workers are doing. So that particularly in the larger co-ops, uh, the workers are organized to deal with management, even if they hire the management. And, you know, there's an inherent conflict there about, you know, management's got its goals in terms of production. The workers got their goals in terms of 
living a sane life and being safe at work and they can be in conflict. So you need a union and the steel workers have a whole program around that, that, you know, we support. Yep, absolutely. Um, and I don't know, maybe if we want to address a lot of things on people's mind now, if you've been getting any comments when you're petitioning, um, but that, you know, the other thing is uh, I'll, 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 quote, or maybe it's paraphrase, can't remember the exact thing, but um, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, his thing is the, you know, the key to prosperity. So he's talking about, obviously, a more prosperous, you know, a more equitable New York. And in his mind uh, is, you know, the path to that is public safety. And so I think this is going to be a big topic you know, uh, both in the gubernatorial race, obviously, and even in some of the local races where, you know, they're just certainly looking here, um, you know, the, the bail reform, you know, we, we're, that could be in danger. Uh, the state legislature did fight back a bit, but they've made some changes. Um, they're clearly candidates, uh, the corporate candidates are picking up on running on public safety issues. Uh, you know, where I live down here in New York city, um, the, the terrible, horrendous uh, situation that's gone on for years and years at Rikers Island where no one really can seem to care enough and put the kind of resources into what needs to be done. Um, it's, it's just horrific to wake up almost weekly and sometimes weekly and hear um, that another person, usually a black or brown, uh, you know, young man has died uh, while at Rikers Island. Uh, and I think that what we really need to do as socialists, as leftists, um, is talk about, you know, what are the real issues here in terms of public safety, what public safety really means. We need to take back that definition and not make people, um, but, you know, believe that they live in fear. Yes, of course, there are you know, crime happens, crime happens in, in big cities in particular. Um, but this is a concern for, for me that we are able to articulate this when we're talking to potential voters, when we're talking to people who are signing our petition. And just love for you to speak about that too, Howie. Well, the best anti-crime program is an anti-poverty program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it really burns me up that the state budget just passed has no anti-poverty initiatives. There were proposals on the table for housing vouchers, uh, strengthening them uh, for uh, replenishing the excluded workers fund, which gave some of the benefits from the COVID situation to undocumented workers. Neither of those passed. And as I've talked about on this podcast, upstate New York cities are among the poorest in the country. When it comes to child poverty and family poverty, my city of Syracuse ranks number one. Right, Rochester ranks number one in ch child poverty, number three in uh, family poverty, and Buffalo ranks sixth in both. And, you know, you go into the rural areas or the small towns that used to be industrial, this is a rust belt. And so, you know, people are really hurting, and they turn to crime. People may have seen, it kind of went viral, a eight-year-old kid, you know, grabbed by some cops for stealing some chips. Uh, you know, I know who those kids are. They're, they're, they're you know, second and uh, first graders, they were riding their bikes around and it was partly because they were hungry and partly because there's no, no other thing for them to do after school. That's their way of, you know, having an adventure. There's no programs for them. And, you know, it's endemic. And if you saw, you know, the way the cops handled it, it looked rough. Mm -hmm. um, and the cops got a tough problem because that 
what happened just happened to get on video. That happens every day here. And, you know, instead of more cops, I mean, what are you going to do? Chase around little kids on their on their little bicycles stealing potato chips? Um, or are we going to make sure those kids have food and they have other uh, options after school? These are uh, children of Ethiopian immigrants, both of whom are janitors. The mother is sick. Um, the father's working two shifts at the hospitals, you know, for low wages. And these kids are running loose on the street. And they that's what all these kids are doing. There's no anti-poverty program in the state. And the Democrats, who are supposed to be the more liberal party, have no anti-poverty program. It just burns me up. So, you know, among the other things, we are saying there should be built into the tax structure in New York a guaranteed minimum income. Mm -hmm. If you're below the uh, poverty level, you would get a monthly check or, you know, income transfer to your account uh, that would bring you above poverty. That's what Dr. King was talking about in the Poor People's Campaign. He said that's the most direct way. The best way to end poverty is the most direct way. You know, the definition of poverty is you don't have enough money. And instead, they, they go into all these complicated things about how do you solve poverty? You know, like the people that are poor are the problem. And you got people like this Ethiopian immigrant father who's working two shifts and he's still poor. Trying to raise three kids and a and a wife who got sick, probably from the work, you know, all the chemicals they use in janitorial work and cleaning. So anyway, that's you know, anti-poverty is something that we're gonna we're gonna make it an issue. And that relates to the crime issue, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and the statistics on that, the uh, Center for Economic and Policy Research just has statistics about uh, correlation between poverty and shootings in black communities in this country. And the poorer the community, the more shootings there are. It's real clear. So uh, you put more cops on the street who might catch the shooters after the shots been fired. In fact, we just had a guy killed. He was a immigrant from uh, South Sudan and his brother got shot and is in the hospital. And they were in a district that's uh, sort of entertainment, restaurants, bars uh, near downtown. And the person that fired, there were cops 20 or 30 feet away who patrol that district at night. The cops being right there couldn't stop it. So we need to get at the root causes and not pretend that hiring more cops is going to stop crime. You know, we do want cops to answer the call, investigate crimes, uh, you know, find out who did them and make sure they're brought to justice. But for crime prevention? No. I mean, we just know that doesn't work. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what other aspects, I guess, of the of Green New Deal? I mean, we talked a little bit um, I think maybe talking to people about community land trust um, and some of the, you know, already where that may be happening. And that's also something where, I mean, I think what we're looking at is how to facilitate, how to break down the barriers uh, to be able to have more publicly owned, uh, publicly financed, you know, democratically decided services for people, essential services. And so public power, I know you've done a lot of work on that, Howie, and also same thing with community land trust, right? The housing issue, uh, both in this state, obviously, is 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 very dire, um, and also I think contributes to some of the other things that we're talking about in terms of you know lack of resources for people, um, you know, contributing to poor health and the you know the environmental impact of fossil fuel infrastructure of pollution um, is you know has an impact on on communities, it's been having an impact, you know, climate crisis, 
uh, has already been touching many, many communities and it's just, you know, continuing to get worse. Yeah, on the housing thing, um, you know, we're emphasizing there's a proposal for a uh, just cause eviction law, good cause, they call it. Uh, that may even pass this spring. Uh, we did get some, you know, tenant legislation that improved rent control around the state, but there's more needs to be done. But the thing is, we need more affordable housing. So the private market can't just jack up prices like they are in New York. And so the federal government has a, it's called the Fair Cloth Amendment or Fair Child Amendment that says they can't build more federal units of public housing, which was just a gift to the private housing industry. But we can do it at the state level. And that's what we're proposing to do. You know, they call it social housing instead of public housing to give it a little distinction. But that's what we need. And that's a program. It's a jobs program. It's a clean energy program. Um, it's also a desegregation program. New York has the most segregated housing in the country mm -hmm. and by both race and class. So we can build these units. They're quality housing, uh, mixed income. So like in Europe, you know, people who live in public housing aren't just the poor people. They aren't just ghettoized in the worst part of town in projects. Uh, it's a, it's an option. It's a good housing option. And that's what we need to build. And that will, now that'll take, you know, some years to build out the, the housing stock, but that starts to get at the root problem. Cause right now developers, they want to build high end housing because they make the most profit on it and they won't build affordable housing without subsidies, but it costs a lot more per unit to build subsidized private housing than it does to build public housing directly. So that's another issue that we're raising and the Democrats aren't, let alone the Republicans. And of course, the segregated being most, you know, in terms segregated in terms of housing has the impact on being the most uh, segregated school system, public that's school right. system, because that's, you know, that goes hand in hand, right? If you're redlining neighborhoods, uh, if you're, you know, segregating people in their housing, then, you know, every, all the kids going to those schools, um, are are not mixing in terms of uh, racial diversity, economic diversity, and cultural diversity. Yeah, and that's true all over the state. You know, Long Island to Buffalo. Well, maybe we get some questions from the chat. Here we go. Amy L. Sachs, welcome, Gloria Matera. Since it was just Earth Day, and I read Winona LaDuke's statement, tell me. Has the New York Green Party been able to publicly support and or collaborate with indigenous activists in the region? Uh, great. Thank I, you. know, in terms of specifics, I know a lot more has been done, I think, with our Green Party uh, chapters and individuals of state, how we probably could speak to this and some of the things that we've done um, in, in New York City in general. That's not uh, really been the case that I, I'm familiar with. But Howie, I think, can you talk a little bit about I think you even were arrested on one of those um, uh, collaborations right, with some of the indigenous activists in your region? Yeah, we were uh, in front. Well, actually, the arrest I got was with veterans, but indigenous people were supporting. It was a fight against storing natural gas and propane, a gasified propane in salt caverns next to Seneca Lake, one of these beautiful finger lakes. I mean, what could go wrong? But that's what the fossil fuel industry wanted to do. And uh, we actually won that fight. That's one of those fossil fuel infrastructure fights we won. Um, and over the years, um, the Onondagas are very concerned about the environment. They're the ones that live 
in a territory mm -hmm. right next to Syracuse, New York, and their, their land claim, uh, they didn't want to, you know, push people off that were on their own land that they were entitled to. They just wanted to have a say, particularly on development for environmental reasons. And unfortunately, their case was thrown out of court. The judges said, you're too late, which is ridiculous, given the history, and I won't go into it, of, you know, what happened to the different uh, Haudenosaunee or Iroquois nations here. Um, and we were talking uh, the other day with, we got a, a second Buffalo billion. If you heard about the first Buffalo billion when right. people like Elon Musk and Tesla and didn't develop uh, what was promised, now we got another Buffalo billion going to the Buffalo Bills, the football team, to build a new stadium. The owner made his money in fracking. He's a $6 billion uh, he has $6 billion in wealth. He wants a billion and a half for a new stadium. He could pay for it himself, or he's got the collateral to borrow the money and pay it off over time from the revenues of the, that the new stadium is supposed to bring in. But the governor is from the Buffalo area, and you know the elites there want it, and they want the state to pay for it, the rest of us. Now, what happened was the Senecas, who have a casino, had a dispute with the state and was holding an escrow, $600 million, you know, about almost uh what not quite half of what that's going to cost and this thing was still being adjudicated in the courts the seneca did lose the decision but there was more to be done and the governor seized those funds and dedicated it to right. the stadium so the senecas are angry um and there are issues all over the state particularly right. with respect to the environment uh and so you and i talked about sorry interrupt we talked about connecting with um some of the leaders um, there around this issue and when we started the campaign. And so, um, yeah, and I think we will. Right. And I want to thank Amy for mentioning, uh, I didn't get to read uh, Winona LaDuke's statement yet, but it is in my email. And of course she, you know, ran wrong with Ralph Nader um, with as a Green Party vice presidential candidate, but she's been continuing to do, you know, good work around that. So thanks for reminding me about that statement, Amy. Scout Trooper 164, how would you improve education in New York? You want to start with that? Well, I think first thing is this this uh, push towards charter schools, that you know, the kinds of charter schools. Going back a little, I started out as a, as an edu in education, a special ed teacher. Uh, in those days, charter schools were really community schools. They were started by the parents and teachers in communities that were that didn't have schools um, that were really you know available and catering to their to what their kids needed right so they were kind of grassroots you know in the way that you might look at workers co-ops or other kinds of community-led enterprises you know now what we have are you know corporate charter schools um, continuing with just Mike Michael Bloomberg former mayor of New York City just gave 50 million dollars for summer school programs in New York City just for kids who attend charter schools. Um, you know, this kind of separating and saying that, uh, you know, a corporate run, you know, backed charter schools are gonna be improving education because our public schools are bad, um, you know, is just really double speak and, you know, making parents who want the best for their kids to go to the best possible school. So first of all is the other thing is, um, is kind of desegregating housing, uh, so continuing to be able to have these vibrant mixed, you know, mixed economy, mixed use uh, neighborhoods where then the neighborhood schools are, you know, a replica 
of that, right? It's more funding for public education. Uh, the funding is out there in the state. You know, we would be readjusting how taxes are done. You know, obviously the stock transfer tax that we've talked about, um, you know, the correct money has to be there to be able to do those resources. Right? In, you know, my area, it's it's just kind of shameful that, you know, down the street, there's a, you know, top public school uh, in a neighbor, high income neighborhood, uh, but in the same district, uh, because of the way the housing changes, there are not um, the same resources in schools. And I also think, you know, the, the priorities are kind of just kind of crazy. There's participatory budgeting. Um, participatory budgeting is a great way for the community to be involved in like improving things. What do we, where do we want our parks? You know, what other kinds of things do we want for our community? Instead, what I see is people saying like, are, we, we, we need new bathrooms in PS52. Like, you know, these are capital projects and improvements that need to be funded by the city, by the state, by the federal government. I don't know how you want to tag onto that. Um, yeah, well, the Green Party in New York uh, has really been strong on education. It's an issue that uh, really is not one that we're emphasizing so much, but it became a big movement. The resistance to high stakes testing, the privatization of schools at the expense and by that, I mean charter schools at the expense of public schools, co-location of charter schools and public school buildings where the charter school gets the better part of the resources in those buildings. All this is going on. And this is part of a nationwide push by the right wing to destroy public education and privatize it. So the rich people can control who gets an education, who doesn't, and what's in the content of that education. And also because of and I won't go into the whole analysis, but because of a capitalism with overproduction, there are not many profitable opportunities in production. So they want to grab as much as they can of the $600 billion a year public revenue stream going to uh, public schools. So there's that. Um, because of our strong stands, we've been endorsed by uh, one year six local teachers union. Um, the Buffalo teachers endorsed us again uh, in 2018. We were six in 2014 despite the state uh, federation, what do they call it? NISA, New York State United Teachers. That's the state federation of uh, teachers locals. Uh, they explicitly said, don't take a position in 2014 and endorsed Cuomo in 2018. But we still had a local defy the state federation and endorse our green ticket in 2018. So, you know, we've got recognition for that. And yeah, when it comes to funding the schools, the property tax is unevenly distributed. We want to make uh, most of it come from the state income tax, which is progressive and everybody uh, who has an income pays it and then uh, distribute it according to a fair formula so that uh, with adjustments for the schools that have been neglected for years so they can catch up in terms of their physical plant and their teaching staff. So, yeah, there's a lot to be done there. And then, of course, desegregation. Um, you know, we have called for controlled choice where uh, people can choose their schools within a district and new uh, districts. So like Syracuse, all the people of color in the city proper and right, you know, sometimes just a block away in a suburb, you got a school, much better funded physical plant, and it's almost all white. And so we need to draw, redraw the district lines so we can desegregate. And then, you know, people can choose what schools they want to go to. And you controlled choice is a combination of uh, making sure the schools are racially balanced as well as people getting their choices. 
Um, we need to do things like that if we're serious about desegregation because desegregating housing is going to take a long time. It's taken, you know, a century to build it up because we're more segregated now by housing than we were a century ago than we were in 1980, probably than we were 20 years ago. It's It just keeps getting worse. And, you know, so we need to redraw the districts and have this controlled choice program. So, you know, the kids are uh, going to schools that have, you know, a good balance socioeconomically. Actually, you can't use race. You got to use socioeconomic, but that's corresponds a lot to race. So you do get the racial integration as well. And the underutilization of schools in terms of the, the building and as a central point for communities, community centers. I, I went to after school program all the time in, um, in public school, and that's not so available uh, anymore for kids. The playground is closed. You know, the lock is on the playground gates um, on the weekends. Frankly, I was raised by, uh, you know, city recreation programs that were running in schools because my mother died when I was young and my father was working. And uh, so I got more direction from, you know, those young men and most, I mean, it's almost all young men at that time. Um, you know, I was in the sports, so that's where I was. That's the kids don't have that today. They're on their bicycles running around stealing chips for thrills and because they're hungry. Frankie Lee, how in Gloria, do you have a district by district strategy to win the governor's race? <laughs> <laughs> well, right, right now we have a district by, uh, you know, county by county, congressional district by congressional district to get 45,000 valid signatures um, by having, you know, people, uh, both volunteer and paid petitioners kind of ar around the state, you know, doing that petitioning. Uh, but do we have it? You know, it's, uh, I'll let Howie speak to this. He's, you know, he's, this is his fourth uh, statewide run, only my second, but um you know, it is a challenge to run a statewide campaign uh, on the kind of you know, not only limited resources, um, Green Party takes no corporate donations, but also the media blackout, which, you know, we've, I think those of you who have been following Howie since his presidential run and then the last gubernatorial run know that it's the, the media blackout uh, is getting more and more prevalent, um, both to protect the you know, the status quo, but also because there's not a lot of independent media. Even these small community papers, uh, at least in, in my area, are being bought up and kind of run by schnapps and other, other places. They're not the same. They're almost the same community paper in every single community. But um, I'll pass it over to Howie. Yeah, well, the district by district strategy on the petition is we need to get at least 500 good signatures in half the congressional districts. So we have districts like my district centered around Syracuse, the one in Rochester. I know people are out today, maybe Buffalo, Albany. Uh, but the most of them are going to be New York City because one thing about New York City is a lot of foot traffic. Unlike, you know, like my city, the downtown looks like a movie set. It's just dead. I mean, you know, in the middle of business day, even at lunchtime, there's hardly anybody on the street. Um, there's just not much. It's it's just the businesses have left and you got some government people and that's about mm -hmm. it. Um, so we got that district by district. And then when it comes to, you know, mobilizing the vote, I mean, New York's a big state. It's got nearly 20 million people, probably 12 or 13 million voters. Um, so what I think what we'll do is what we've been doing is 
encourage our locals who are organized by county to do district by district canvassing within their their area. And if somebody's in a new area and wants to work with a campaign, we'll teach them how to do that. Uh, we just don't have the capacity to do a, a ground game that covers the whole state. Um, and then on the media, yeah, it became, it really when Trump got in there, a lot of liberal media, they, they're under the impression that the Greens take away votes from Democrats. And yeah, we're trying, but the fact is most of our voters won't vote if, if we're not on the ballot. They don't like the Democrats or the Republicans. Mm-hmm. We know that from an exit poll for Jill Stein in 2016 about that presidential election. 61% of Stein voters told the exit posters they would have stayed home if she wasn't on the ballot. So we bring new voters to the uh, polls more than anything else. Um, but I do course- think in the, air, for, for the, the areas where, as you said, Howie Green locals, um, you know, wh- where they're active and where we've been working, you know, along with others in coalition on certain issues, you know, are the places probably to concentrate. As we said, you, you can't cover every, you know, every place in the state, but, you know, in the areas here, in, in New York City, where we've been fighting against, uh, you know, a power plant or you know something else, and it, things happening in other areas, you know, that's where the we hope that the activists and the organizers we've been working with on the issues see that helping us to be able to get on the ballot, stay on the ballot, and get, uh, you know, the votes that we need to continue to be uh, a party that gets on the ballot that has their ballot line. Uh, that we need to come out strong because those issues get lost after the, you know, once the primary's over and usually the most places the Democrat kind of sails into the, the, the general election, no one's talking. Even if you have the most left candidate challenging in the Democratic primary, once that person is summarily dismissed and we know that that happens, the issues that we've been talking about today and we've been talking about in the Green Party will just not be raised. And I think another piece of this is we define win not as win the office, but we come out of this stronger than we went in. Uh, the better percentage we get, the more leverage we have going forward, like that 5% we got in 2014, did give us leverage. In fact, Gloria was in a meeting with the EPA director to want to know, or what they call DEC in New York, Department of Environmental Conservation. Uh, you know, They wanted to know what we thought about climate policy and energy policy. And Governor Cuomo crashed it for a minute. Um, you know, maybe you can tell people more about that. But the fact is that 5%, you know, people were, were listening to what we had to say at that time. Um, with Trump in office, I mean, it was really tough in 2018. Mm-hmm. I had people who had phone bank for us, giving us money, who said, I got to vote for Cuomo as much as I hate him to get at Trump. Now we got to support the Democrats to fight the Trump fascists. Well, how did that work out? The, the Democrats have both houses in Congress. They can't get voting rights laws passed. They can't stop the Democrats in about 20 states from setting it up so they can steal elections. The Democrats can't fight the fascists. You know, it's a choice between, you know, neoliberal corporate Democrats and neo-fascist corporate Republicans or a progressive party on the left. I mean, I think that's an argument we got to make to people. Mm. Make your vote count. And as I was saying during the presidential campaign, you vote for Biden you get lost in the sauce if you're for Medicare for all or a Green New Deal. Nobody knows that vote, you know, that vote because Biden was opposed to those things. Uh, you vote for the Greens, at least that's a vote for Medicare for all and Green New Deal. The more votes we get, the more leverage we have. So 
We're not expecting to win the office. We're running against two corporate parties with tens of millions of dollars to spend. We'll be doing good if we get a couple hundred thousand. And, you know, we'll do the best we can with that. So that's just the reality. But that doesn't mean we can't win in the terms we define. And there's certainly ways that, uh, you know, those of you listening now or may tune into this later can help. Um, so obviously, if you're in New York we uh, and a registered voter here, we'd love for you to get a petition. You can go to gpny.org to uh, get that. Um, if you want to help out and contact us, uh, we may have a couple of uh, paid petition openings still going. If you'd like to apply, you can also do that at gpny.org. And of course, uh, particularly today, to give me some birthday love to uh, get on the ballot, along with my comrade Howie, you can uh, donate hawkinsmatera.org slash donate. Yeah, definitely. All the money, just about all of it's going to petitioning until the end of May. We're paying our uh, paid petitioners $20 an hour. You can't pay by the signature in New York. That's against the law here. So we're paying, you know, the minimum wage or the live, you know, the minimum wage in New York City is $15 now. And the Greens were fighting for that. And, you know, we got 5% in Cuomo implemented a uh, a graduation toward 15, which they've now reached uh, a lot slower than we would have liked. Upstate, we're still at 1350, so we haven't even reached that. So, you know, we're paying a decent wage given the circumstances here, uh, but we definitely need those paid petitioners. So anything you can give, 65 is a good number, you know, today. Uh, <laughs> but whatever you can give, we really need and would appreciate and you see the, and the webpage is live. I don't know if we mentioned that. So you can read about our platform and more about our biograph biographies. And we got a section there about the original Green New Dealers, which has links to a lot of the leaflets and videos and news releases and articles about us campaigning for a Green New Deal in 2010. You know, I'm sick and tired of these journalists saying it started with AOC. You know, we actually know where she got it from. She got it from VG Ramos, who was running a green city council candidate who was using the state, you know, stuff we'd done to run for a city council race. So we're not so worried about the credit. We're just angry that they watered down the program and made it a kind of neoliberal corporate welfare program instead of an eco-socialist public program. So Violet at Content Boutique. I got an email from AOC yesterday saying that the Green New Deal is here in New York City communities. What is that? You know, I've been out petitioning. I saw that same email because I'm on her list. And uh, I don't know what she's exactly referring to. There is some stuff going on in New York. You know, there's uh, some building retrofitting going mm -hmm. on. There's, uh, there's starting to build offshore, the, the offshore wind, not as much and as fast as we would like. Uh, there's support for solar and uh, wind, both farms and, and smaller applications. But again, it's... Uh, the smaller applications, only those people that are, you know, wealthy enough to be able to afford the initial investment up front or qualify then for a tax credit can do that. You know, lower income people, it's just beyond their reach unless we get a public, we finance it through public power companies or a public bank so they can finance it over time. And the savings between the fuel you're saving for gas or heating propane or heating oil Uh and what you pay for electricity for the heat pumps, 
that's how you can finance it over time. But there's no uh, banking system that will make those loans unless we do it through public bank. Yeah, I so, think that, yeah, I, I haven't seen that. I, I, I got off her list. Maybe I need to get back on AOC's list just so I know what she's talking about. Um, since she's not the original Green New Dealer, but... You know, I there look. There are there are laws being passed. There are improvements being made. Right, there's kind of like um, the the environmental and the social justice, the environmental justice activists and organizations on the ground have you know been pulling and tugging and getting some of the more progressive Democrats to speak up about things, but the pace is painfully um, slow. It's you know, the people we've talked, I'm not sure if you on your last um, podcast, Howie, if that, if the IPC report was out, but it is, you know, every report and they tend to be a little on the conservative side is more dire, is more tragic. Uh, and so I think what we're talking about when we talk about things be public power, um, you know, public banks, uh, you know, kind of taking it, everything seems to be uh, being done slowly, too slowly too incremental, uh, and too still based in the kind of private industry corporate model, um, you know, the public-private partnership kind of work that goes on. And they've been planning uh, the transition to clean energy since the last Republican governor, Pataki, in 2005. And a lot of times they never even meet their deadlines, and we never get the work that was done um, in the current uh planning to being done under the Community Leadership and Community Protection Act, the weaker bill that passed in 2018. It's now four years later. They still don't have a plan. Uh, they're having hearings on their plan. They have one here in Syracuse next week. I'm going to go there and petition. I'm not going to waste my breath telling them what to do because they're, you know, industry's got the inside track with them. Another thing, the difference between what we were advocating and what the you know Working Families Party compromised with Cuomo was when they talk about, you know, disadvantaged communities participating in the process, their legislation said organizations that represent disadvantaged communities. You know who that is? It's the middle class people that run the NGOs. It's not the people in those communities. Our bill was very clear that you had to live in the neighborhood and there was a process for making sure those people were accountable to the community. So the planning process that we proposed was much more democratic. Uh, they're, they're, I went through the point by point on that in a long article called Does the Climate Movement Really Mean What It Says? It was in Counterpunch a few years ago. You can look it up. And I took that task, for example, Bill McKibben, who backed the compromise bill, you know, that Cuomo got behind with the 450 parts per million in the preface of it. That's what I meant. That's what gave me the title. Does, you know, does Bill McKibben and the broader climate movement really mean what they say? when it comes to deciding what they're going to support. And you know what their rationale is? I understand it. Well, this is what the Democrats are willing to do, so we can only do what they're willing to do, instead of demanding real solutions. Right. And so and New, I, York, New York City, she may be talking about, uh, they just passed something called Local Law 97, uh, which is uh, supposedly a fairly you know, aggressive uh effort to reduce carbon emissions, mostly focusing on buildings uh, here in New York City. So uh, let's we'll take a look at that, Howie, and we'll basically talk about um, how we can improve on that and speed up that process, because I'm sure that, um, you know, it's an effort 
uh, and people are happy that it was passed, but you know, it'd be interesting to know how that's going to happen. Private contracts, uh, how slow is the rollout? Let, let's see what that's about. But you know, we're not about saying because somebody came up with a bill or something was passed and you know, it, it's, it's trash, right? It's, we're not, we, you know, we acknowledge things that are being done. Uh, but when it's being and done in the context of really kind of corporatized method, uh, you know, in, you know, in, you know, under a capitalist uh, system, you know, we know that the profit, right, is going to be first, um, you know, what shareholders are getting, the kickbacks are happening, uh, the lines of politicians pockets, we know that that then somewhere the costs have got to be cut for really implementing these programs and these services. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about the steel industry and the cement industry being so important for the transition to 100 percent clean energy and zero emissions. There's nothing in the state, you know, law that passed dealing with industry, let alone because, you know, just use steel as an example. There was a good article in The Intercept last week you can look up about green hydrogen and steel, green hydrogen being the way to make steel cleanly. And there's a quote in there from a a steel executive saying, Coke ovens are here to stay. You know, Coke, Coke is a derivative of coal. Enormous carbon emitters. I mean, the only way to get the steel industry, I believe, to get the technology to the clean technology of green hydrogen and electric arc furnaces is to take them over as public enterprises and shut down the Coke ovens as we build the uh, green hydrogen ovens. And, and then do the scrap metal with electric arc furnaces, which the industry is slowly moving toward. But their time scale is too slow to deal with the climate crisis. That's, that's why we need you know, this eco-socialist approach and why we're calling the Green New Deal now the eco-socialist Green New Deal because we got to make a distinction from what, you know, how the Democrats have not just watered down and slowed down, but they're doing a, a totally different kind of program. It's, it's not even you know, a New Deal program which did use some public enterprise. Uh, one example, I may have mentioned it on this podcast, but the Civilian Climate Corps, they're doing it in a privatized way. The Civilian Conservation Corps in the, Green, in the New Deal was a public agency. They hired the people and they planned the projects across the nation in a coordinated way to, to do conservation. Now we want to do climate remediation. But the way they're going to do it is they're going to run through AmeriCorps which will put out requests for proposals, private organizations will put in their grant proposals, and then, you know, AmeriCorps will pick them, but it's not coordinated. And the people are being employed by private entities, not a public agency that could have better control over labor standards and wages and so forth. So that's just another example of where uh, the Democrats have taken a, you know, a privatized approach to these public policies that's inappropriate. Steve Talbot, how does the Green Party support non-urban people? We got a Green New Deal for agriculture. Um, and, you know, what that involves is uh, supporting with subsidies and technical assistance the transition from chemicalized, highly fertilized, highly pesticide-using agriculture to organic, regenerative agriculture that rebuilds the soils. Uh, we get corporations out of... Uh, owning farms, which they're doing more and more. I mean, the biggest uh, farm owners now are private equity firms on Wall Street. Uh, Bill Gates is a big owner of farms. 
farmers are becoming like tenant farmers like they were in the you know the gilded age when the populist movement rose uh, so uh then we want the farm to go to the farmers uh if they don't have land uh we can have public land trusts in this case for farmers to uh you know rent the land so they can farm without necessarily have to raise the capital to buy the land themselves or we can have help financing that and then we need to support their income with uh, parity pricing and uh, supply management uh, so the markets are regulated and farmers get are guaranteed a living income above their cost of production and then the other piece of it is the rural towns we can uh, strategically locate the food processing and other manufacturing using agricultural feedstocks in these towns upstate new york needs it these towns have lost their factories they're depressed and it's still an agricultural region so, you know, with public direction, we can bring those manufacturing jobs using agricultural feedstocks back to our communities. Um, so I think that's a lot better than, you know, Republicans are getting the rural vote now, uh, basically by scapegoating immigrants. We're actually out there picking the crops. It's, it's, it's crazy. And one other thing, just since I mentioned immigrants, uh, studies show that if we're gonna go to organic regenerative agriculture, we're gonna need a million new farmers in this country. A lot of those people coming from Central America are farmers. Their dream, their American dream, is to be a farmer here. So we have the new farmers we need. We just need to, you know, let them in and get to work. I think we should also uh, make a point, though, about black farmers. Um, and, you know, the. so in, in addition to, you know, obviously uh, needing the, needing new farmers, and we'll, that's, that's a great place uh, for us to offer new people coming in, um, also to create situations, resources, priorities, uh, and programs to, you know, really, you know, increase, um, the population of black farms, black farmers being there. So uh, quite a bit being done by actually other several greens. We're talking about that. Omawali Adwali, uh, has been putting that into practice in, uh, Sullivan County and, you know, really kind of spearheading some of that work. Yeah, and you know the Southern Black farmers won in court reparations from the Department of Agriculture mm -hmm. back, uh, I think, during the Obama administration, and it's been very slow coming out. Still hasn't come all the way out. They're still complaining, uh, and they're losing their farms in the meantime. I mean, this is uh, Jim Crow and farming, and Department of Agriculture has been terrible. And uh, you know, even though we're running for state office, that's something that you know we're cognizant of. And, uh, you know, what Oma Wally's doing in New York, you know, part of our uh, agricultural program should be to help people like Oma Wally that, you know, we have people, Southern people, you know, in Syracuse, black people that used to have farms down South and they mm -hmm. moved North to get industrial jobs. Now the industrial jobs are going back, but they have community gardens. They like, they, they might prefer farming. So uh, we should, and I do know some black farmers upstate that, uh, you know, I actually know several um, and they just need the support, and that's something we should provide. Great. Steve Pabot, if working people spend most of their time working, how can they participate in Green Party efforts, especially when their employers are generally not supportive? Well, uh, we need to, you know, lower the working hours uh, with no loss in pay. That's all another program that mm -hmm. you need to have a a tax source, so you pay people a second income, basically their share of uh, social productivity gains, so they would have more time. That's 
a demand that's been on the table since the 30s, you know, 30 hours work. 30 hour work week without reduction in pay. We, many of us know that slogan, um, but it wasn't just a slogan. It's, it's actually about, a, you know, quality of life uh, for people. And sharing the productivity gains, because what's happened mm -hmm. since about 1970 is all the productivity gains have gone to the ownership class and wages have been stagnant uh, for what they call the golden age in the late 40s, 50s, and, and almost to the end of the 60s. Wages and productivity grew in tandem. And then in you know, 1970, there's a profit squeeze and then a corporate offensive against unions and workers. And they've been able to keep our wages largely frozen while productivity kept going up. And what this, if you have a way of uh, having a broad-based tax to fund the second wage to cover those 10 hours that you wouldn't be working. So you, you get your pay, you get 30 hours work, uh, but 40 hours pay. Right. Um, that's a way of doing it. Um, because if we leave it in the hands of corporations, they're going to keep exploiting us more and more and our wages will be stagnant, barely able to survive on them. And the, they'll take all the profits. And Steve, that's why we, you know, we are, we're appreciative of um, anyone who donates uh, volunteers, whether it's in the street petition, whether it's phone banking, or even just on social media, getting the word out about the green party, about our campaigns, um, because, you know, we know, you know, working people or people who would like to be working, um, but, you know, are not able to, or, or people who would like to work, but they're doing caregiving, uh, whether it's for the very young in their family or the very old or the, or the, or the ill, right? And that's, those are people that should be paid a living wage also. And so we, you know, we're always appreciative that, you know, the, it's the, it's the working class, it's the, it's the students, it's the seniors that are supporting these kinds of campaigns and efforts. Lena Dell or Lana Dell, uh, both major parties suck, dump the incumbents. But in order to do that, we need to vote in our primaries, which sometimes means temporary re-registering as Democrat or Republican. Vote third party in general, get these corrupt incumbents out. Um, a lot of people do that. I don't recommend it. I think uh, we should put all our efforts into building a real party of the people. The Green Party, um, you know, the Democrats have been around it's the oldest party in the world. Um, and there's no way that corporate interests that control it are going to give it up. Um, so instead of playing that game inside their party, we should put all our efforts in the, you know, voting in their primaries. No, we should be uh, organizing for our candidates. And, uh, you know, we have primaries where we have ballot status sometimes. So, uh, that's a reason to register green in a, where you can do that in those states. But um, don't give legitimacy to these two parties. You know, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders is probably the best of the progressive or people call themselves democratic socialists. It's really kind of need new deal liberalism. But, you know, he, he makes the Democrats look better than they are. Because whose programs are getting passed now? It's not Bernie Sanders. It's, you know, what Biden... Uh, wanted to do and that even that is passing because they they won't lift the filibuster and it's not just cinema and mansion there's probably eight or nine senators who quietly want to keep the filibuster so 
I just think, uh, you know, put all your efforts into building the Green Party. Eric Gray, I'm considering running for office here in Florida as an independent. So I'm curious what localized equal socialist plan looks like. Well, I'll just say there's a Green Party in Florida. I hope you're going to run as a Green, Eric. But uh, you want to say anything about local Green New Deal? Uh, I, I think some of the things we talked about, Eric, might be, um, you know, obviously looking where you're running for office may be very different um, than, you know, running where we're running. But, you know, I think the the ideas of, of public power, right, power, public power generation, um, the, you know, the, the the housing, right, desegregation of housing and, and the, you know, public school systems uh, there, uh, you know, be nice to know kind of what what might be happening. Are you thinking about running like locally more um, like a, a city council uh, as opposed to over a statewide office? So what are some I'm sure there are some environmental issues uh, that are close to home. But, you know, I think anything around public power, um, you know, housing are, are really important. I don't know what the housing situation there is there. We certainly can put you in touch with the Green Party in Florida. You can look them up. Um, even if it's you still decide you want to be independent of any party, I think you'll find that the work that they're doing and the issues that they're promoting sound like they're going to be closer to, you know, what you'd like to do as an independent. Yeah, I would just add that uh, another thing you can make as part of your, you know, platform is for local office or state office is that uh, there should be a planning process to get to 100 percent clean energy and zero emissions in <laughs> you know, your city or your state uh, as soon as possible. And because of the way the tax system works, you know, city and state budgets have to be balanced. You can't borrow the money. Well, you can borrow some of it, but you can't run unbalanced budgets to do this. That's why once you got a local or state plan, then you demand that the federal government uh, provide the resource to finish the plan that you can't do with local resources. And the other thing I think is strategic uh place to aim your efforts at is the planning board or planning agency. Uh, if you're lucky, you have a planning department in your city. Um, that should be a place where the public plans and bids out the, the projects. What tends to happen now is developers show up and the planning board or agency rubber stamps what they want to do. You know, there's a hearing and, you know, 99 times out of 100, they're proposal gets approved. So you have uncoordinated planning and, you know, they're not most of them leaders in, uh, you know, build green buildings and so forth. So you got to reverse that. So, you know, take over and democratize the planning process and then you can begin doing green development or redevelopment. Right. And let's not leave out what I'm sure Howie's talked about uh, on, on his shows before, uh, which is ranked choice voting uh, because that's catching on in some cities uh, and, you know, you can do that on a citywide, right? It doesn't have to be the whole state. Um, it could, it's efforts in cities that have been able to do that uh, in several places. And so, you know, we've been doing, trying to work on that here too um, in, in New York State, New York City. And ranked choice voting for multi-member districts for your legislative body. So you get proportional representation. That's the real game changer. Right. Um, and I've, I've said this before, but see somebody just mentioned Australian Greens in the chat, but in Australia, they have ranked choice voting by single member districts for the House. So the Greens have one out of 151 seats in the House because they got one district where they're the majority. 
um, after the ranked choices. And they get about 10% of the vote for the House nationwide. In the Senate, there's seven multi-member districts. And the Greens have, I think, uh, seven or nine out of 63, close to 10%, which is their city, nationwide vote. So you see the difference. If you just have single-member districts for ranked choice voting for legislative bodies, you're not going to change much. If you get multi-member districts, then you're going to get proportional representation. And that's the game changer because then the Greens will get their fair share of representation in government. And then things will really have to change because to get anything passed, we'll have enough votes that they're going to have to they have to deal with us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Greens are in government all over the world because most systems are proportional, like the Australian Senate um, or the German Bundestag, you know, most countries. And that's why we get as big a vote, if not bigger vote, than a lot of the European Greens in other parts of the world, but we don't get representation uh, that we're due especially at higher offices. We do have over 100 people elected to local office around the country. A lot of people don't realize that. They only hear about us when we run, you know, candidates for president. Mm-hmm. But that's because they don't live in an area where there is local greens. But that's our emphasis. And so I urge you, Eric, to run. And good luck. And, you know, we'll help all we can. So, Gloria, our... Uh, the manager behind the screen, you know, let's let's go extra half hour. They certainly did. Wow. <laughs> Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it was a good discussion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to wrap up, I, I want to, you know, okay, we got the donate URL there. Uh, this is a good day to donate. It's Gloria's birthday. She just got her Medicare card. And <laughs> do a little research. You can figure out how old she is. <laughs> And, and we're saying we're saying uh, make a guess and sixty five dollars would be a great donation appropriate on this day. But as we say, whatever you can afford, if it's more or less, we welcome it and we need it. And any last word from you, Gloria? Just uh, thank you for having me on, Howie. I'm, I'm excited to run with you again. Uh, really appreciate those people who are tuning in on uh, any support uh, we get, no matter how, you know, push us out on social media as the campaign ramps up. If, uh, if you're not in New York and can't help out petitioning or, or from voting, uh, I want to thank Howie's team behind the scenes uh, for, you know, get, producing this show and um, hope to be back again. And But we will see you uh, on independent media and in the streets. Stay strong, comrades.